The reading this morning comes from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 to 12. Peter continues to explain what is expected from God's people to grow and live godly lives. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in the scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. This is the word of God. Well, um, life's pretty full on in my family at the moment. Uh, Marion's just returned home and I was there last week too. Um, so we've had granddaughter number three um, and so we've been supporting and helping um, Eden and Adrian. Uh, Jail has transferred from a hospital in Melbourne. She's now at Port Kembla. Um, so that's kind of wonderful. Yes, we're excited about that. Um, and of course, Marianne's uh, father uh, passed away. And so as we're engaging with Let's pick Marianne's mum. There's something going on in her life at the moment. There's a context that she's dealing with. Uh, and perhaps the ways that Marianne used to relate to her mum 20 years ago is not what's appropriate at the moment. Uh, and, and relating to Jail as a daughter, or here's an even more tricky one, relating to your children when they become parents. My goodness, that's complex. Um, what, what do you say? Uh, and, and how much can you say, and when do you bite your tongue, and how long do you bite your tongue for? There are seasons of life, I can see all the people my age and older laughing, right? There are seasons of life where things kind of change and they're different. And, and as we walk alongside people, the journey is shaped by the season of life in which we happen to find ourselves. And you know what? I think scripture is the same. We sometimes have this idea that when Peter writes a letter to the church, he just writes to every single church across all of history, and we just open the book up and read it. But actually, Peter was writing to a specific church 
in a specific set of circumstances and, and what he writes first has to do with what's going on for them. And the church he writes to, he's in Rome in the early 60s. It's the time where Nero has come to the throne. He's going to persecute Christians. He's going to blame them for burning down Rome. Uh, They will become martyrs. Suffering and persecution are on the increase. And so his letter reflects those particular circumstances. In fact, I want to suggest to you, the whole Bible actually functions this way. Um, I don't know if you've quite thought about this, but... At a big picture level, the Bible covers about 18 centuries, 1800 years of history. And sometimes the people of God are conquering. They might be going into the promised land, or they might be going out on mission in the New Testament. At other times, um, for about four or five centuries, the people of God are inhabiting they're in a position of responsibility, of authority, and they get to sort of make laws and godly laws and maybe build temples, um, or if you think about church history, build cathedrals. Uh, at other points in, in the biblical narrative, um, there's about five or six centuries where the church is in exile. The people of God are persecuted. They're under attack. They're not in authority On the contrary, um, they are somehow opposed and in decline. And then there's another couple of centuries where uh, the people of God are homeless and they're wandering around and they're kind of in transition. And if I could kind of map that, it maybe it feels like this. There are times where it feels like, wow, we're moving forwards, we're going ahead. There are times where it feels like, okay, we're at a nice, healthy, stable plateau, Uh, There are other times where it feels like things are going backwards and there are other times where it feels like we're wandering around in circles and we're kind of lost. And I take it that the scriptures cover this range of options because as we subsequent readers of the Bible read the scriptures, we're conscious that across 2,000 centuries and Hundreds of cultures at various times, Christians who are reading the scriptures find themselves conquering. At times, the church might be growing. I I went to um, a church in Africa about uh, five years ago. On one day, we baptized 150 people, most of whom were uh, previous Muslims. This church had planted 10 other churches. It was really exciting and dynamic, and it felt like, you know, we were on the up. There are other places where it feels like the church is in positions of responsibility and authority. If you go to the Pacific Islands, uh, roughly 70% of people go to church every Sunday, 90-something percent of people will say they're a Christian. There are some countries in Africa where it's like that, Tanzania or South Sudan. There are, um, South Korea is like that, right? Uh, America has been like that, um, but is waning which brings us to the next category, and that's us in the West, right? We're conscious that uh, whatever levels of attendance and influence we used to have, they're in decline at the moment. And there are other places where it feels like maybe the church is wandering around in circles. This is what we're living through. And it's close to what the churches Peter was writing to were living through as well. 
And so I think this is a helpful book for us to dip into and think, how do we walk alongside people and do mission if this is our world, if this is our context? Put another way, we lived in times where the idea that there is a God, that uh, the Bible is, is uh, a, a helpful book of wisdom, that Jesus was a great guy and we should aspire to be like him, the fact that God's some kind of a judge and that there's an afterlife and he will determine where we spend eternity, they were all plausible ideas. Pretty much everybody in Western culture held to those ideas, whether or not they were actually a Christian. But we've seen that drop away and now those beliefs are seen as implausible, as unlikely, as a bit of a fairy tale. Well, let's jump into Peter, who's writing to a church in a not dissimilar context. And I'm going to quickly whip through chapters 1 and 2. Uh, this is not a whole sermon on that part, so we're going to move fast, but it sets the scene for us. To God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia. These are all places in modern-day Turkey, central and eastern Turkey. Uh, if you're coming on the tour, we'll go to some of those. Um, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. Isn't that a beautiful thought, that God knows you and chose you? Through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood, grace be yours in abundance. We could spend a month preaching on just that passage, um, but let me draw out some key themes. You're chosen and known by God. Think about persecuted Christians. What is it they need to hear? That God knows them. That God loves them. That God has chosen them. That they are, in God's eyes, washed by Jesus' blood and sanctified, being made into new and better people by the work of the Spirit. And, in the rest of 1 Peter, we haven't read the whole chapter, part of what Christians will experience in Rome or in, uh, in Turkey at this time is trials. But Peter says, these trials that you're going to experience... The outcome of that will be that your faith will be refined and you will bring glory to God. In a prophetic way, Peter is speaking into what's going to happen for the Christians in the first century. And his message is suffering is coming. It's not, but it's okay. God's going to take the suffering away. Or it's so unfair. His message is actually... This suffering somehow will refine you in a way that will make you more like Jesus and bring glory to Jesus. And therefore, at the end of chapter 1, get on board with God's program. Focus on living a godly and a holy life. Let's jump into chapter 2, and now we're in today's passage. As you come to him, to Jesus, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house 
to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus. Again, there's lots in here and we're just going to skim over the surface, sorry, but I, I hope you can get some of the vibe that's going on in this passage. Jesus is rejected by humans and chosen by God. Imagine you're a Christian in Rome. Nero's going to blame you for something you didn't do. You're going to be persecuted. You're going to be hunted. Some of your family or your friends might even be killed. They might be burned. To know that, yeah, humans are rejecting you, but God has chosen you? If you had to pick, somebody's going to reject you and somebody's going to choose you, which would you go for? You'd go for this combination, wouldn't you? Okay, I've been rejected by the world, but God has chosen me. I'm precious to God. And God is going to take these rejected stones and he's going to build them into a spiritual house. Temples were important in biblical history, right? Um, the Jews mourn the loss of their temple twice uh, and um, they go to the wall and they pray on, on the remnants of a building. Um, the disciples are walking through Jerusalem and they say to Jesus, look at this impressive temple. Is your kingdom going to come now because we've got this temple? That's the kind of setting we're in. And now understand what Peter is saying. You're persecuted. You've been kicked out of your synagogue. You're not going to be able to build an impressive temple when you're under persecution. But what God is doing is he is taking rejected stones and he's cobbling them together into a spiritual temple that will bring praises to God. Isn't that a beautiful picture? Even if we're not in power, even if we can't build our cathedrals, God will, by the work of his spirit in us, form us into a spiritual house that will bring glory to God. Another thing that happens in the first century if you become a Christian is that your family disowns you. You will probably be kicked out of the house. You'll lose access to the family income. Let's say you own fields, you just lost that. There's no social security system. So now your church family, your people of God family becomes your um, means of security, your networks the people who love you and look out for you. They kind of replace all of that. And together, the church will offer spiritual sacrifices to God. But you're a chosen people, a royal priesthood. Can't you hear Peter kind of circling around the same themes and just kind of layering them on top of each other? And they're just beautiful images. Uh, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of, his dark, out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you're the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. 
Again, just a few quick observations. Uh, you might feel rejected by the world, but you're chosen by God. And you are, Peter says, to those churches under persecution, and by extension to us, a royal priesthood. Now, that's an odd phrase, because royalty aren't normally priests, and priests aren't normally royalty. So what Peter is trying to do is he's trying to say, take together two of the most important offices in your culture in the Old Testament, and, and somehow you're going to be both of those in the one. This is doubly special. Um, and it will be your task to, as a king, as royalty, reflect the magnificence of God, but as a priest, to reflect the holiness of God. You're going to do both of those things. You're a holy nation, and that word holy means set apart, other. You're, you're different, and you have a special, unique task. And you're God's special possession. Think about maybe uh, the queen and her corgis, right? Or uh, Kim Jong-un, and, and he now seems to be lining up one of his children to be his successor. That's what God's doing. He's got children all over the face of the earth. But somehow he is lining us up to be the receivers of his eternal inheritance. So that you might declare his praises. That's what it means to be God's special, chosen, precious children. It doesn't mean God says, oh, you're precious, therefore I'm going to remove all suffering from you. Or you're precious and I'm going to give you more possessions. Right? What, what it looks like is that um, you're called to this task, but the suffering that you will endure will, will refine you, it will grow you, and in the process, that will bring praises and glory to God. And part of what Peter is also saying is, that's your highest calling. As a creature, you will find yourself when you're worshipping your creator. Uh, I, I've got a dog who um, has a bit of separation uh, anxiety, right? And when I come home, the dog is so happy it piddles. <laughs> kind of frustrating. You will find yourself in uncontrollable joy when you are worshipping your creator. Did I say something wrong? You won't find yourself when someone buys you flowers, when you feel loved by another human being, or when you find that ultimate partner, or when you get that promotion at work, or that new uh, electric car that you've kind of been checking out the reviews on, or uh, whatever it is that you kind of yearn for and think will somehow fill your tank, right? That is not when you will find yourself, when you are a creature worshipping your creator. That is your greatest purpose and your greatest fulfilment. And 
Not only do you get to do that because you've been chosen, because you've been washed, you also are the recipient of God's mercy. Let me try and give you some pictures of what this might look like, other than my pet. Um, <laughs> imagine that at the moment you're the Chinese or the Russian ambassador and you're trying to sell some kind of a message in the West. You're on a hiding to nothing, aren't you? And I wonder if that's what it might feel like for us at times. And yet, I take it those two guys believe in their kingdom. Perhaps that's not the most helpful analogy. Try this one. Here's a um, church that was up the road from my house in um, Hobart. It's a Greek Orthodox church. Uh, now, Hobart is not got a lot of Southern Europeans. There aren't lots of Greeks and Italians like what there are in Melbourne and Sydney. There's some, but not nearly as many. Um, and so they were kind of a, a clicky niche group in Hobart. And um, they kept to themselves and did their own thing. And one of the things they did was Easter. But they follow a different calendar than us. And so the rest of Hobart would be celebrating Easter or Dark Mofo or whatever the heck they were doing. But the Greek Orthodox would be a little bit out of step with the rest of us. And then kind of like a week or two after Easter, their priest would march around holding a cross and um, a bunch of Greeks would march behind and, and kind of, we'd be all going, hang on a sec, Easter's over. But here they are doing their thing around the block in front of our house. And if I went out there and called out, hey, you guys are two weeks too late, they'd be going, we know what you think. We march to the beat of a different drum to the timetable of a different calendar. I think that's part of what Peter is trying to say to the church under persecution. You will feel different. You will know that everybody else is on some other timetable, chasing other dreams, living for other goals and aspirations. But God has chosen you and he set you aside for a special task. Now, he's got a bit of advice for us if you live in that kind of a world. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles. That's what it's going to feel like. Like you don't fit in. Like this is not your native country. Like you're in exile. And he's tapping back into that Old Testament imagery. To do what? To abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. So what the world will be saying is, oh, you can do what you like with the flesh. It's not spiritual. It doesn't matter. There'll be all sorts of messages in the first century. And Peter is saying, look, they're not just different options and everybody can choose their own thing. You know, it's not kind of like, oh, well, you know, here's um, Chinese food and here's Australian food and Chinese eat this and Australians eat that. But at the end of the day, it's all food, right? He's not saying all spiritualities are the same. He's saying... Sin wages war against your soul. And what those people are doing, it's not just some other option. It's wrong. And it will 
eat away at you from the inside out. It will bring about uh, an inner discontentment. Like in The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, you can never quite have enough Turkish delight, but you will always be yearning for a bit more of it. That's what sin will do for you. It'll, it'll break your relationships. It'll leave you feeling unsettled. Like whatever the world is doing, whatever drum they're marching to, whatever they're chasing, don't go there. It's not just neutral. It's not just another option. It actually is detrimental to your soul. Reminds me of the words of Jesus. Most people are going to be on the wide road and it's easy and it looks appealing. And you'll be on a narrow road that looks hard and you will have the discomfort of feeling like there are less people and questioning yourself. Am I on the right track here? Because most people seem to be going some other way. That's human nature, right? We feel comfortable in crowds. But sin wages war on your soul. Um, I also think it's kind of like the emperor's new clothes. Yeah, lots of images today. Um, there's a sense in which we will sometimes look at the world and go, you, you're chasing what? You think justice is what? You think fulfillment is what? But everybody else will be kind of so excited and passionate about it and we'll be kind of thinking, are we missing something? Here's Peter's second bit of advice. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Again, there's a lot in that verse. Let me say a couple of things. Peter's saying you will be accused of doing wrong. And the, and the Christians will. They were. And we will be too. We'll be accused of being judgmental and arrogant and opinionated and whatever we're going to get accused of. And some of those accusations, most of them will be false. There's something inevitable about being misunderstood and being judged when you're a foreigner and when you're in exile. But hey, Peter's advice is, Jesus was chosen by God but rejected by man. So you're the same as him. Jesus himself says, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. So don't expect justice and fairness. Don't expect that we will get the kind of voice that the minorities are getting. And, and um, here's a reflection from somebody I was listening to this week. Speaking to Christians, don't play the victim card. I think there's a temptation in our culture to kind of say, well, all the minorities who get persecuted, at some point in time, they get to play the victim card, right? And then everybody listens. And like, I don't think that's going to happen for us. Because we were seen as the previous bullies, rightly or wrongly, and I think it's only partially true, not in, in the main part. Um, but that's not what Peter's suggesting. He's saying, just get on and do your thing. And the consequence will be that some 
may see your good deeds and glorify God. This is Peter's advice for how you do mission in an exile context, right? Live good lives amongst the pagans and some may see your good deeds and glorify God. That as you're a witness, as you're walking alongside people, as you're dialoguing with them, that some may sense that there's something about your life that's different. And keep in mind that God will visit. There will be a day where the world and the chosen are held to account for the lifestyle and the choices that they've made. Live such good lives among the pagans, Peter says. I don't think he's advocating for us to become some holy huddle that's separate from the world. And in his book, um, Sam Chan, and we're looking at this book through this series, uh, he, he invites us, he encourages us to merge our universes. I think there's a risk where as Christians we can kind of be part of, you know, Christian churches and youth programs and children's programs and sporting clubs or whatever it might be um, and, and kind of uh, social chat rooms and we're in this world and the world is in some other world and those two universes never intersect. And, and um, I think what Peter is encouraging and Sam is to say, well, be a light in the darkness. Be in the world. Find some places where you can live and walk alongside people who are different from you so that they can see your good deeds. Well, let me pull this together. We're living through a time where it does feel like things are going backwards. The, the kingdom is, is retreating, in the West at least. And, and that can be disconcerting, it can be disheartening. We can kind of want to give in and throw in the towel. And Peter knows that that's how Christians will feel in part in, in Rome and in parts of Asia. But I think what it feels like to us is not the greater reality. I think if I can try and draw this or capture this in an, in a, in an image, God has chosen you and he's working in and through your life and potentially in the lives of others who you live amongst. And he's bringing about his kingdom purposes. And it might feel like there's ups and downs, but ultimately we can have hope that God will return that Jesus will come and he will bring this kingdom in full. And so the, the sense of hope for those who are suffering is not so much in this world and in the avoidance of suffering, but it's in the justice and the peace that comes when God returns. And he will. And we will be vindicated by having trusted in him. Let me pray for us. God, we're conscious that there are different times and seasons in history, 
in our own lives, in our families, in our relationships with others. And we find a breadth and a richness in Scripture that allows us to lean into those spaces with insight from particular parts of biblical history. So God, as we sense an alignment between what's happening in our culture and what happens in parts of Scripture, we just want to ask that we might know that we're chosen. That we might feel precious to you, loved by you. That your spirit is inside us, working within us to transform us and to make us who we have been designed to be. And that as much as we might feel at times rejected by this world, that the confidence and the assurance that we have that we're chosen and loved by you, that that just outweighs that. And we want to ask that that centeredness that we have in you, Jesus, might express itself in a compelling, loving, godly life that we live out amongst the Gentiles and that you would bring across our paths people who also lack that centre, who also are being called by you into a, a loving relationship of joy and of peace through Jesus. May we be those advocates for your glory.